Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I heard a pastor tell a story of when he was sitting around the dinner table and he heard one of his kids say that one of their siblings was salty. And he was, he was puzzled by it. He's never heard anybody call somebody else salty before. And so uh, he could tell by the tone that his kid said it in that it was not a good thing. And he said, you know, that it was kind of a negative, uh, a negative statement to say that somebody was salty. And so he said, salty? He's, you know, he's, his wife saw that he was confused. And, and she explained to him that it meant that, that the kid was in a bad mood. And that was a new term that the kids had picked up. And he looked at the kids and he explained to them, uh, that Jesus actually told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount to be salty. And Matthew chapter 5 actually is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We, we took a whole, almost a whole year to preach through the entire Sermon on the Mount. It covers Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And in the first part of Matthew chapter 5, he goes through all of what's called the Beatitudes. Blessed are they that. And he goes through all of those things, but then he comes to verse number 13, And he says this, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. That's the command that we're given in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 13 there. We are to be salty Christians. And that doesn't mean that we should be in a bad mood. It means that we should be salty. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But salt can lose its savor. And so can we as Christians. We can lose our influence. They say that in Israel, I've never been there. I want to go someday. Uh, I've, I've, a lot of my friends have been there and have talked about the trip, and they just say that you know, it's just, a, just an amazing experience to be able to go and see all the places that Jesus saw and to walk in the same places that Jesus walked in and you know, all the stories in the Bible and just to be able to be in those places. And, and several of my friends that have been there have, have actually talked about the fact that it really kind of opened up the Bible to them because now when you're reading the stories in the Old Testament, especially reading the stories in the New Testament of where Jesus did this miracle and that miracle and the disciples did this and, and that, you can actually picture in your mind these events taking place because you're seeing it in your mind where it's at. But they say that when you go over there to Israel, the tour guide explains that back in Jesus' day when people wanted to season their food, they took a bag and dipped it in the food. They took a, took a salt bag, kind of like, um, like a tea bag. And they would take that, that salt bag and dip it in their food, and it would give, uh, you know, just they would leave it in there for a time, and that would give the salt crystals time to dissolve in the bag and, uh, and into their meal, obviously, just like a tea bag eventually dissolves in tea. Uh, the interesting thing is that after all the salt crystals dissolved in the food, Whatever was left over in the bag was whitewashed, washed out, you know, it was called slag, and they literally would throw it out their front door and kind of make it part of the, the road, uh, and, and it would just be walked on, and, and basically nothing more than gravel. Uh, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. If the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall, be, shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of the men. By the way... This is a great reason why we cannot, especially in today's, uh, in today's age, just read the Bible. Is it important to read the Bible? Absolutely. But we need to study the Bible. I was just talking to Matt last week, and he was talking about you know, a, having, having a study Bible to be able to use and study the Word of God with. That's a tremendous thing to do. 
Because if you have a commentary with you, and of course, you know, we're not getting all of our doctrine from a commentary because commentaries can be wrong and, and commentators that, would con- that we would consider to be good commentators actually differ on, on, you know, interpretation of different passages. So we don't get all of our doctrine from a commentator, but it helps and we should be studying the Word of God, which you just read through that verse 13, and it may not mean a whole lot to you. But if you actually know the context of why Jesus is saying what he is saying, it makes a whole lot more sense. It's not worth anything. You just throw it out there, and they actually use it for gravel. They use it for the road. And it's not worth, actually, what salt is meant to be used for, and that is to season our food and all of those other things. So how sad is it when we as Christians lose our influence on this world? And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that we are the light of the world as well. Uh, But we can literally become useless to the cause of Christ. Salt that has lost its savor is worthless, except to be used as pavement, except to be used as gravel, except to be trodden under the foot of men. And the same thing is exactly the point that Jesus is making here is exactly what happens to us as Christians when we lose our savor. So how do we guard against losing our savor? How do we stay salty? Salt has a number of functions, and I want to talk about those this morning for a few minutes and see if we can help answer this question. Are you salty? Are you salty? Let's pray, and then we'll look at a few things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the time that we have to spend together around the Word of God. Pray that you'd make it a profitable time for us. I pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts and help us be exactly what you want us to be as Christians so that we may be useful in this world. Well, thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn over, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 14. I want to tell you this, first of all, salt preserves. Salt preserves, and that doesn't come as a surprise to you. You know that before we had refrigeration, salt was actually used to preserve meat. Now, they, would, they had a cellar, and in that cellar, many times, they would have their meat hung up, but that meat was hung up in a bag that was just filled with salt because salt actually preserved that meat without refrigeration, without ice, and actually kept it from rotting. People had salt rooms where meat was covered in salt. It was stored there. Uh, salt was, in, was the ingredient that kept that meat from spoiling, and that made salt actually a very valuable commodity. I mean, think about, think about if we just decided we were going to get rid of our refrigerators today, and there was only five refrigerators left. Do you think that a refrigerator would be a very valuable commodity? Absolutely it would. And that's the same way that salt was. Now, it's not that there was no salt. They were able to find salt and everything like that. But if you think about how much we enjoy meat, how much we love meat, and have no way to preserve it other than keeping it in salt, well, salt was actually a very valuable thing because it was a preservative. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse number 34, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I believe that's how God looks upon us as his children. He says to us, you are so valuable to me. You're the salt of the earth, he tells us. And if you think about it back in the days before they had refrigeration and when Jesus would have been talking about this, they would have understood, I think, how valuable that salt was in that preservation. God's desire for us is to use our lives to preserve our nation and our world from absolute and complete decay because of sin. Sin is a reproach to any people, the Bible says. Now, do you realize the gravity of what I just said? 
We, our job is so important. Our position is so valuable. If we don't preserve Christianity, what does this world have left to protect it from Satan and his influence? Satan wants to bring that decay. Satan is trying to fill this world with as much sin and decay as he possibly can. We are the salt that preserves that from happening. And that's such an important function of us as Christians. That's why I'm constantly talking about Christians who want to live and act and, and, and just generally imitate the world. If we're no different than the world, then what are we offering the world? We are to be the preservation of godliness. We are to be the preservation of righteousness. We are to preserve Christianity. And if we're not preserving it, then what are we doing? We're no different than the rest of the world at that point. And if we're no different than the world, then we're not making an impact. We are salt that has lost its savor. And we're not worth anything but to be trodden under the foot of men. If we're not telling others about Christ and about their hopelessness without him, then how are we preserving anything? We have to be so careful not to lose our savor or our influence. Which, by the way, you think about a Christian that has lost his savor. Now, it's they make fun of Christians enough. But you know what? A Christian that actually stands up for what he believes, a Christian that actually stands up for the gospel, even though they absolutely hate it, they respect it. And they know that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian. They may not like Christianity, they may not like the gospel, but they know that you're at least doing what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian. You know what they do to Christians who don't act like Christians? Trod under the foot of men. They don't respect a Christian who claims to be a Christian but does not act like one. And you know that to be true in the workplace. You know that to be true because what happens when you go do something that you know a Christian should not do? They make fun of you. You're not supposed to be doing that. You're a Christian, right? They know what Christians are supposed to do even if they don't want to be a Christian themselves. But I'll tell you what's going to happen. Eventually, they're going to see what you're doing and they're going to see how you're living and they're going to see what your life produces and they're going to want it. And if we're not preserving Christianity, then we are salt that's lost its savor. Salt preserves, but also salt makes things palatable. Now, I had to keep it in line with a P, but what I mean there is salt makes you, I mean, salt adds flavor. Job chapter 6 and verse number 6, the Bible says, Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Salt makes things palatable. It makes it actually to where you can eat something. I know you've eaten something that had zero flavor. And it does not taste very good. And what's the first thing you say? Boy, this thing needs some more salt or something, right? Now, I'm not one of these people that as soon as you get your food, before you even taste it, you dip, dump salt all over everything. I've been at a restaurant with people that have done that. And I think, you didn't even taste it yet. How do you know what it tastes like? Everything on your plate is going to taste like salt. But they know they like salt, and they know they want flavor. And so what do they do? They add salt to it automatically, right? It's like people, and maybe you're one of these. I'm not making fun of you necessarily. Well, I am. But maybe you're one of these people that dumps hot sauce all over all of your food. You know, I, tell, I've, I know I've mentioned that before, but I had a friend of mine who, uh, he loved hot sauce. And so the first thing that he did, number one, he would order the hottest thing on the menu. And I think sometimes he did it for, you know, for show. He wanted everybody to see, I'm ordering the hottest thing. We'd go, so I traveled in the, in the singing group, in the ensemble, and he was with us. And, and um, every restaurant that we went to, he would ask the waiter, what's the hottest thing you have on the menu? He would order that. And then he would say, do you have more hot sauce? And he would dump hot sauce all over whatever was the hottest thing on the menu. And I asked him one time, I said, what is the point of doing that? Because there he is, sitting there eating his food and sweat pouring off of his face. And I'm like, how is that enjoyable? You know, number one, you can't even taste the food. 
Number two, you're pouring sweat because what you're eating is so hot you can't even stand it, you know? Uh, there was a place called uh, Quaker Steak and Lube. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Now, it sounds like Quaker State, but it's actually Quaker Steak and Lube. And they have a wing, chicken wing, that is so hot that they actually make you sign a waiver before they'll give it to you because if you burn your mouth on it, they don't want to be held liable. He got that thing, and he ate it, and you should have seen, I mean, his face was pouring sweat for two hours after he ate that thing. But I asked him one time, I said, what is the point of putting hot sauce all over everything you eat? And he said, well, once you get into the world of hot sauces, it's a whole different world. It just adds so much flavor. I said, then why don't you eat your food and enjoy it and then go drink a bottle of hot sauce afterwards if you like the flavor of the hot sauce so much, you know? I never understood that. I want it as mild as I can handle it. But people do that with salt, right? They make their plate, they get it, and before they even taste it, dump salt all over everything, right? Because salt does add flavor, and that's what the Job is asking there. Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? The food is good when you put salt on it many times. And sometimes all it needs is just a little bit of that flavor, just a little bit of salt. God desires for us to do the same. Our lives should be a reflection of the Lord. In fact, turn over to Colossians chapter 4. See, when we live our lives pleasing to Jesus Christ, we're going to add good taste to the things of God, to a world that's bitter and unsavory. We want the world to taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Doesn't the Bible say that in Psalms? Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man. Well, isn't that interesting? Now, I thought we only put salt on food, but he's saying that our speech should always have grace and it should be seasoned with salt. Our conversation should be such that people are turned to Christ by the things that we say, and even more by the way that we say it. The Holy Spirit given control of our lives, will make our conversation what it should be. See, when we talk about things that we shouldn't be talking about, many times that happens because the Holy Spirit has not been given full control in our lives. When we say things that make the world question whether or not we really are a Christian, when we say things that make other Christians question whether or not we really are a Christian, it's because we have not given the Holy Spirit full control of our lives, and therefore, He does not have full control of our tongues. Now, that doesn't mean that our conversation has to be only religious. It's not that you only have to talk about Christian things or Christianity, uh, just like our food would never be 100% salt, you know? I've never seen anybody go to a restaurant and order a salt block. Nobody's done that, because eating straight salt is not good either, but... It means that whatever the topic, the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Christianity should be diffused all the way throughout that conversation, just like salt does, no matter what food it's being added to, right? It doesn't matter if it's peas or meat or corn or anything. You add salt to it, it gives it flavor. And that's exactly how we ought to be as Christians. Our conversation ought to add salt into that conversation. It ought to be Christianity diffused all the way throughout it. A lot of people who very well may have accepted Christ have been turned away from Christ because someone who claimed to be a Christian was harsh with their words. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't give people the truth. Sometimes when we give them the truth, that is to them so harsh that it turns them away from Christianity. The fact that you tell them that they're a sinner on their way to hell turns people away from Christianity many times. But that's just the truth of the Word of God. 
Now, the way that we give them that truth has a lot to do with whether or not they're going to accept it. Because you can have somebody that, you know, that stands in somebody's face and hollers and yells at them that you're a sinner, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, and you're on your way to hell. In fact, if you are part of this sin, I hope that you go to hell. The way that we say those things, the way that our conversation is, if it's not seasoned with salt, as the Bible says in Colossians chapter 4, can turn people away from Jesus Christ. But when our conversation is seasoned with salt, it can drive people to Christ. We have a responsibility to proclaim the truth, and we have a responsibility to preserve the truth, but we also have the responsibility to make the things of Christ palatable. You see, as much as we should hate abortion, which is murder, by the way, and do everything that we can to fight to bring it to an end, we should love those who are involved with those things and try to bring them to Christ. As much as we hate murder and should hate murder because the Bible preaches against it, we should love those who are the murderers, as hard as that is, because Jesus Christ loved them and he wants them. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As much as we hate the sin of homosexuality because the Bible is against homosexuality, we should love the person and want to see them saved because that's what Christ does. By the way, what a better way to fight against sin and bring it to an end than to win that person to Christ. You want to see somebody come to an end of their homosexuality? Win them to Christ. You want to see somebody change their mind on abortion? Win them to Christ. That's the best way to fight against that. Not, I mean, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't you know, do marches and all of those. I'm not, I'm not trying to say those things at all because we should fight in every way against those things because that's what the Bible does. But we ought to do it in the way that a Christian would do it. And we ought to love them and we ought to pray for them and we ought to try to win them to Jesus Christ. What a better way to see them stop and to win than to win them to Jesus Christ. And that only comes when we love them the way that Christ loves them. If that person comes to Christ, he's going to change his ways, and we're going to accomplish our goals in more way than one. Treating a sinner like we're better than them or like we hate them is only going to serve to drive them from the truth. Because you have to remember something. I'm just a beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. I'm not better than them because I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. Now, I'm certainly uh, before God, I am cleansed, and before God, I am righteous, and I can spend an eternity in heaven. But when it comes to the way that we deal with people, look, they're sinners. They're going to do what sinners do, and that's sin. Their father is not God. They're not trying to please God. They're trying to please their father, who is the devil. The Bible says that in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer in the beginning and abode not in the truth. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Of course they're going to sin. They're sinners, and so are we. We're sinners saved by grace, and so we shouldn't sin, but we still do. How many sinners do you see acting righteous? Not very many, but how many righteous do you see acting as sinners? A whole lot. So we cross over a whole lot more times than they do, if, they, if we can commend them one, one way or another, that's one way that we can commend them. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but think about it. We, as Christians, should make Christianity palatable. We should add flavor to anything that our life is involved in. The Bible says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. We're going to win a whole lot more people to Jesus Christ when our conversation is seasoned with salt and seasoned with love and given in a heart of compassion than we would if we were just harsh and hated the world because of what they're doing. 
Salt preserves. Salt makes things palatable, but also salt makes you parched. There's another P that I had to use. But it makes you thirsty. Salt makes you want water, right? Uh, my wife, it's, it's funny because we'll go out to eat at a restaurant, and later on that night she'll, she'll be drinking a glass of water, and she said, boy, that food must have been salty. I'm really thirsty, right? Even though you can't taste salt necessarily in there, but salt makes you thirsty. We have, we've all heard the, the statement, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? We can't make him drink, but we can give him a salt block to lick and make him thirsty, right? And we, we had horses growing up. They loved licking that salt block. We would have those out there, and you'd see them out there all the time licking on that thing. It would be big grooves in the side of that salt block where they had licked and licked and licked and licked. Our lives should make the lost around us thirsty for what we have. In fact, turn over to Psalm 34. See, if we're, always, if we're always moping and complaining about how difficult life as a Christian is, we're never going to win others to Christ. Look, we've been given eternal life. And even though life is certainly not a bed of roses as a Christian, we have the joy of the Lord. And I'm telling you, as a Christian, life is wonderful. It doesn't mean that everything, you know, you're going to have a million dollars and life's going to be a cushion and you're just going to float on through life. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But life is good as a Christian. David said, I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen it. And you've heard story after story and you've read, you know, book after book of Christians who lived their life. And even though they had a difficult time with certain things, they never wanted, they never went hungry. God never left them hanging because they were his. And life as a Christian is a good life. And we get all of this and then heaven besides. What is there to not be excited about? And yet we mope and complain and, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that. And, well, if I just could go live in the world for a while, look how much fun they're having. They're not having fun. They, they, they want you to think that they are. It's, it's, it, I, I kind of look at the world like an Instagram post. You know? The world, they're going to show you the best of everything. But you ever seen, like, behind the scenes on some of those things? Uh, some of those pictures, you know, they, they call them influencers and these people that have millions of followers on Instagram and everything else. They got that perfect angle and the perfect shot and the perfect lighting and everything else for that one picture. That does not represent their life. Most of their lives are falling apart. Most of them are fat and overweight and everything else, and they're trying to make you think that they're skinny and in shape and all of these other things, you know, because it's all in how you angle it. And that's, that's what a lot of these people who are not saved are trying to make life. Oh, look how much fun we're having. They're not having fun. Their little snapshot might look like it's fun and everything else, but, but when they go home at the end of the night, they're miserable because they don't have Jesus Christ. But we do. And even though there might be some snapshots in our life of things that are not so great, some things that are not so good, overall, we got a wonderful life as a Christian. And we have Jesus Christ, and we have the joy of the Lord. We've got all of these things. The Bible says this in Psalm 34 and verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Taste it. See that the Lord is good. That's what our lives ought to be. Our lives ought to make people thirsty for Jesus Christ. Henry Ward Beecher was a pastor in Brooklyn, New York, beginning in 1847. So this will tell you how long ago it was. But he, he, was, a, he was a staunch abolitionist, but he was actually the brother of, Henry, uh, of, of, of Harriet Beecher Stowe. And Abraham Lincoln uh, knew who Henry Ward Beecher was. He was actually pretty well known at the time. But he said this of Beecher, that no one in history had so productive a mind. 
he was in the audience at one point. Abraham Lincoln was. Walt Whitman visited him. Mark Twain went to see uh, Henry Ward Beecher preach one time, and, and he described him this way. He said, sawing his arms in the air, howling sarcasms this way and that, discharging rockets of poetry, and exploding minds of eloquence, halting now and then to stamp his foot three times in succession to emphasize a point. Now, Mark Twain never claimed to be a Christian. I don't think he was a Christian, but he was in that service, and that's how he described Henry Ward Beecher. But he was invited to attend a meeting, Henry Ward Beecher was, of an atheist club where the famous agnostic Robert Ingersoll was preaching. And obviously, many of the things that Robert Ingersoll wrote were very, very much in that agnostic vein. But he attended the meeting, and he watched throughout this meeting as Ingersoll just berated and derided and ridiculed the Christian faith. And when Ingersoll finished up with his speech, he knew that Henry Ward Beecher was in the audience, and everyone knew who Henry Ward Beecher was. He was the pastor of one of the largest churches there in New York City. And so he looked at him at the end of the service, and he asked him point blank, Mr. Beecher, do you have anything you want to say in defense of Christianity? And Henry Ward Beecher got up and he said this, ladies and gentlemen, You'll forgive me if I seem just a little bit shaken. On the way over to the meeting today, I saw something that really shook me up. I saw a blind man standing on a curb and a little boy who was getting ready to lead him across the street. And about that time, a big ruffian of a man came along. He shoved the boy aside and took the poor blind man's crutches and tore them to pieces. Then he battered and beat the blind crippled man to the ground. And Ingersoll was kind of taken aback and he said, well, do you know who this guy was? And Beecher replied, it's you, Ingersoll. Man is a poor, blind beggar. He has few supports in life and fewer indeed who are willing to give him any help at all. What do you do, Ingersoll? You take what few props man has away from him and those who would try to help and encourage him, you push them away. You are the man, Ingersoll. I would say to every infidel and every unbeliever that you are the man who would rip hope out of the hearts of poor people who want something better than what this old world will ever have to offer. The most encouraging truth is that God loves you. The most encouraging truth is that we can have salvation. The most encouraging truth is that we can know Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior. We can have eternal life. And he offers that to us. That's Christianity. Are you projecting that by the way that you live? You see what Ingersoll was projecting? Nothing but hopelessness. And the small hopes that they do have, he had ripped them out from underneath of them. Does your life make others want to become a Christian? That's what I mean by salt makes you parched. Salt makes you thirsty. The way you live should make others want to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Turn over to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look at the last point here. Salt preserves. Salt makes things palatable. Salt makes you parched, but lastly, salt purifies. Salt purifies. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 49, the Bible says this, For everyone shall be salted with fire. And every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace one with another. Now, there's a question for you. Salt that's lost his savor, is it still salt? I'm not saying that if you lost your savor as a Christian that you're no longer a Christian, but it's hard to call salt salt if it's not doing what salt does. Right? If the salt have lost its saltness. Now, Job's life, if you go back and look at it, we're not going to take the time to do that this morning, but Job's life teaches us that fire is sent to purify us. He says, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold, 
and that gold purified through the fire. Salt is also a purifying agent. The word fire here in Mark chapter 9 gives the idea of self-denials, of sacrifice, of trials, and keeping ourselves from the gratification of the flesh. Now, there's another verse in Mark chapter 9 and verse 49 that if you just read it without doing any study into it, it'd be hard to understand what he's talking about. Everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Well, when it came to the sacrifices on the altar in the Old Testament, they were an offering to God. Those sacrifices on the altar were there to sacrifice and make a sacrifice an offering to God, but it was sprinkled with salt. We're told that in Leviticus chapter 2, and if you go back and read through that, you can see that, but what a picture of, it was a picture of purity, and it was making it fit for a sacrifice, and they were commanded to put salt on those things before they sacrificed it on the altar, and that's exactly how we are supposed to be before God. We're to be devoted. We're supposed to be set aside for him. We are sacrifices. We are offerings in his service. Romans chapter 12, may I remind you, says that we are to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. See, to make our lives an acceptable offering, everything that we can do must be done to preserve us from sin and to purify us. That's how we ought to live our life. We're not purifying anything if we're not pure ourselves. That means denying ourselves. It means, it means subduing our lust. It means enduring trials. It means uh, removing offenses, as the Bible says. Those are the proper preservatives in the service of God. Distinguished pastor of a church in New York City, Dr. Maltby Babcock, lived a long time ago as well, but he was approached by a physician who was actually in his church that was concerned about his health. And he said, you know, Dr. Babcock, I have some theater tickets for you. I want you to take these. You need this for recreation. Well, the pastor looked at them, and he saw what the play was and knew that it was not a play that he would go to on purpose because of some of the things that were in the play. And he told this doctor, he said, thank you, but I can't take those. I can't go. And the physician, he said, he said why not? He said, doctor, it's this way. You're a physician, a surgeon, in fact. He said, when you operate, before you operate, you scrub your hands meticulously to make sure that they're especially clean. You wouldn't dare operate with dirty hands. He said, I'm a servant of Christ, and I deal with precious souls, and I wouldn't dare do my service to Jesus Christ with a dirty life. Our job as salt is to be a purifying agent in a dirty world. If we don't keep ourselves clean, then we're essentially salt that's lost its savor. A farmer went every week to the farmer's market to sell, among other things, cottage cheese and apple butter that he made on his farm. And he had two individual pots that he had, one with cottage cheese and one with the apple butter, and he had a ladle that he would use to dip out of each and pour it into the little container that he would sell to the people who came to this farmer's market. Well, one day he got to the farmer's market to sell his things, and he realized that he had forgotten one of the ladles. Well, he didn't have any other choice other than to use the same ladle for the cottage cheese as he did with the apple butter. And so he started dipping one out of the cottage cheese and another out of the apple butter and back and forth as he sold these things. And pretty, pretty soon what happened is he couldn't even tell which one was which because there was so much cottage cheese in the apple butter and so much apple butter in the cottage cheese. And you know, that's exactly what happens in our lives when we 
try to share the good news of Jesus Christ using our hearts and minds and tongues after we do things that are not pleasing to God, whether it's books or magazines that we read or whether it's the things that we watch on television uh, you know, that we know are not pleasing to Christ, uh, subscriptions to different uh, uh, streaming services that are things that are just not things that are pleasing to Christ. I wonder how many, uh, how many adulteries you watched this week. How many murders you watched this week? How many other commands were broken in the things that you watched this week? Oh, I would never go out and kill somebody, but you'll watch somebody else do it. Oh, I would never go out and commit adultery, but you'll watch somebody else do it. Oh, I would never do this, but you're going to watch others do it, and you're going to fill your minds full of those things. How can you be a purifying agent when you are not pure yourself? That's what he's talking about. That is salt that's lost its savor. Salt that is not pure cannot purify. If you have salt mixed with gravel and you're going to try to put that into something, it's not going to purify anything. In fact, it's going to make it more dirty. It's going to make it worse. It's going to cause infection. It's going to do a whole lot worse than pure salt would do. Right? They put salt in a wound to help purify that wound. But if you had salt that was mixed with dirt, it's going to make that wound a whole lot worse than just salt by itself. And that's exactly what we do as Christians. We cannot mix with the world and expect to be a purifying agent to this world at the same time. It cannot happen. But you can rest assured that if you're living life as a Christian, living for the Lord, then God will use us to help purify the lives of those around us. And that's what our desire ought to be. That's the purpose of salt. That's what salt is designed to do, is to purify. All you have to do is look around at this world to know that it's abundantly clear that we have our work cut out for us. There's a whole lot of purifying that needs to be done in this world. This world is an open, putrefying wound because it's so filled with the dirty, rotten sin that Satan injects into this world. We as Christians are to be salt that can be the purifying agent. And I'll be honest with you, that's why this country is in the shape that it's in. Because Christians have mixed so much with the world. We're not pure anymore. We're not separate anymore. We're not different anymore. And most Christians have lost their savor. So may I ask you the question again. Are you salty? Salt preserves. Salt makes things palatable. Salt makes you parched. And salt purifies. Are you a salty Christian? Or are you salt that's lost its savor? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the truth from the word of God. And I know sometimes the truth hits us hard. But truth is truth, no matter whether we like it or not. And I know that everyone in here this morning would agree with me that we need to be salt that's not lost its savor. But God, some of us might be in that position where we're not doing everything that we can do as a Christian to live for you. We're not doing everything that we can do as a Christian to be different from the world enough that we make a difference. Some of us have to admit, God, I'm afraid that we are salt that's lost its savor. And sadly, we're not worth anything but to be trodden under the foot of men. I don't think I need to Take a raise of hands in here this morning for us to all admit that we want to be salt that makes a difference. So God, I pray that you'd help us.
to make the decisions that need to be made in order to be the Christians that we need to be in order to make a difference in this world. I don't think there's anybody in here that would say that we don't want to see a revival. We do. But I pray that you'd help us to do the things that are necessary to bring it about. God, where we need to purify things in our own lives, I pray that we do that this morning. Well, thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. As the piano plays this morning, if God's spoken to your heart, come to us.